Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Always remember the way God treated you. Always remember what He did and didn't do because of His mercy, because of His love.
first day I was born You've had your eyes set on me Keeping me safe in your love All of my days I will sing joyfully Lord you are good to me always so good to me Lord you are good to me always so good to me do all of my joy and my tears though I Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me hang this up. I'll be right back. All right, good morning again, and uh, again, if you haven't turned your Bibles already, please do so now. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter one, verse uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and uh, we're going to continue our study of Ephesians. Actually, we have this is our final two classes in uh, in our um, uh, study of chapter two of Ephesians, and then we're having a two week break, and uh, so our last class before that uh, break will be um, this Thursday, uh, this Thursday, and then we resume classes Tuesday, March twelfth. So from uh, t tomorrow's, uh, uh, Thursday's class is the last class before we have a couple of uh, weeks. So I'm going to take a break from teaching. I'll still be working, of course. Uh, then we'll be doing, uh, 
resuming our classes as we uh, mark Tuesday, March 12th, when we begin a new chapter, which is begin chapter three of Ephesians. So these are our last two classes in Ephesians chapter two. And this today will be con actually constitute our 129th hour in Ephesians. And today, as you can see, we're going to look at the A part. Uh, we're actually looking at the epic clause that's in this verse. Uh, that composes this verse, and uh, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22a part, is actually the exegetical clause, the declarative statement the state in, in this verse, which teaches us that church-age believers are being built together into God's dwelling place. And then, I believe uh, what we'll be doing is looking at the, um, on Thursday, uh, we'll be looking at, uh, what's that going to be? Um, we're talking about the means by which church-age believers are being built together into God's dwelling place. So, we're going to be looking at the two prepositional phrases, as we'll see today, that bookend this verse. Like the last verse is bookended by prepositional phrases which talk about appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ. And so we have uh, something very similar here in Ephesians 2.22 where the, the, the epexegetical statement which constitutes verse 22 is modified by two prepositional phrases which give the means by which church-age believers are being built together into God's dwelling place. So this is another a metaphor that Paul's using to describe the church's relationship to the tri triune God. So without further ado, let's take a moment to sign the prayer. We take a moment to sign the prayer here at Winston Bible Ministries to examine ourselves, determine if we're in fellowship with God uh, or not, if uh, we're uh, in... Yeah, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. And we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3, 16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, his, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for another blessing of another day to experience and enjoy creation and experience fellowship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit, other like-minded believers in the body of Christ. I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to this ministry and through all the trials and tribulations in Iowa and Massachusetts now. We're here in Huntsville now, and I thank you for bringing me here. And I thank you for the people who have, along the way up to this present moment, have been, good, uh, uh, been serving in this ministry some capacity or... Uh, supplying, uh, helping us financially or praying for us or all of the above. I just thank you for each and every one of them. And I just thank you for the study in Ephesians. And I pray it would be a blessing of the body of Christ today and now and in the future with the, with the recordings. I thank you for the technology that you've given to me and the wisdom to be able to run the thing. And uh, I just pray, thank you, Father, for that. And I pray everything will function properly. Thank you for the streaming video service by YouTube, which they provide. And I just pray that would function properly. I pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray you would use those mightily, as you have been, and continue to do so, and uh, and also uh, protect them from any attacks from the enemy. Uh, and um, I also pray that today that you'd help me uh, as your um, instrument, to be your instrument today, to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction, and to communicate uh, the contents of this verse to your people. I pray this help me uh, to through the power of the Spirit to do so with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment because your word states that man does not live on bread alone but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. I pray that you would help your people work mightily and powerfully through them, help them to be as uh, humble as well and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction by the Spirit, help them to learn, understand, and to concentrate and to make the proper application of what they're being taught. And I just pray, Father, that not only would they receive the necessary spiritual nourishment, but they would uh, would worship you and through uh, whatever medium that they choose to, uh, singing or praising you or uh, thanksgiving. I just, or, and, and more importantly, all of us would uh, live the spiritual life and would uh, keep short accounts with you and be uh, continue to grow spiritually to become like your son, Jesus Christ, which is, the as you've taught us through the Spirit and the Scriptures, 
uh, is the plan of God for the church age believer to grow up to become like Jesus Christ in thought, word, and action. So just thank you, Father, for our union identification with your son uh, in his uh, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection session at your right hand that uh, is the basis for, for this uh, spiritual life that you've given to us and this plan that you've given to us which originates from eternity past as you've taught us in Ephesians 1 in election and predestination. I pray that all of us in this ministry would appropriate by faith our union identification with your son by considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan and alive to you. So Father, we pray for this in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Should be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And I said, as I said before the opening prayer, this is going to be our last two classes in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And before we move on to chapter 3, which we won't begin till Tuesday, March 12th, as I said before, because on uh, after Thursday's class, we'll have a two-week break from teaching. And so, uh, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read from the Good News Bible today. And then I'll read, as I've been doing, my translation, and then we'll, we'll dig into verse 22. So it says in Ephesians 2, 1, again, I'm reading from the Good News Bible. In the past, you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our, own, in our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined to suffer God's anger. But God's mercy is so abundant and His love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, He brought us to life with Christ. Uh, it is by God's grace that you've been saved. In our union with Christ Jesus, He raised us up with Him to rule with Him in the heavenly world. He did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of His grace and the love that He showed us in Christ Jesus. For it is by God's grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift, so that no one can boast about it. God has made us what we are, and in our union with Christ Jesus, He has created us for a life of good deeds, which He has already prepared for us to do. You Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by the Jews, who call themselves the circumcised, which refers to what men do to their bodies, to rem remember that what you were in the past... At that time, you were apart from Christ. You were foreigners and did not belong to God's chosen people. You had no part in the covenants and which were based upon God's promises to his people. And you lived in this world without hope and without God. But now, in union with Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought us peace by making Jews and Gentiles one people. With his own body, he broke down the wall that separated them and kept them enemies. He abolished the Jewish law with its commandments and rules in order to create out of the two races one new people in union with himself and in this way making peace. By his death on the cross, Christ destroyed their enmity. By means of the cross, he united both races into one body and brought them back to God. So Christ came and preached the good news of peace to all, you, to you Gentiles who are far away from God and to the Jews who are near to him. It is through Christ that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, are able to come in the one spirit into the presence of the Father. So then, you Gentiles are not foreigners or strangers any longer. You are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of the family of God. You too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. So, and uh, and uh, before I read my translation of chapter 2, uh, remember, for those who might be uh, new to the study, uh, for th this is for their benefit and a reminder to those who've been following along uh, faithfully. Uh, this book was written uh, by Paul while he was during his uh, experience, his first Roman imprisonment under house arrest in, in, in the city of Rome. Uh, according to Acts chapter 2, had his own rented quarters, but was chained to a Roman soldier. And this was between 60 and 62 AD, so it's one of the four prison epistles. The others being Colossians, a book we studied in the past, Philemon, another book we studied in the past, and Philippians, another book we've studied in the past. And so we see that the recipients of this letter were not only uh, the Christian community in Ephesus, but also the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia, uh, And uh, because this is a circular letter, as we pointed out. The purpose of this letter as we put it out many times in the past, is to uh, maintain, Paul was concerned about the Christian community in, uh, in, in, these, the, in, in the Roman province of Asia, that he, was, he wanted the uh, unity between the Jews and the Gentile wings of the church to experience this unity which was provided for, uh, for them 
uh, through their union identification with their son, his son, uh, the father's son, Jesus Christ. And at the moment of justification, uh, you were, through the baptism of the Spirit, united with Christ and identified with Him in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. So in a positional sense, we have this unity. And in a perfective sense, we'll have it in a resurrection body at the rapture of the church when we're perfected at that time, all of us. And uh, But He wants this unity to be maintained experientially. And that's going to be through the practice of the command to love one another and all that involves, as we'll see in the last three chapters of this book. And we saw that the indicatives of the Christian faith are put in the first three chapters and the imperatives are found in the last three chapters. Or in other words, uh, the doctrines are in the first three chapters and the application of these doctrines are found in the last three chapters. And so uh, this is where, we're, now we're in, in the section we're in now, in the, in the second uh, major section in chapter 2, in verses 11 through 22, Paul's talking about the new humanity. And he also says that, uh, that the, the Gentiles, who were far away from God because they were not in a covenant relationship with God, like the Jewish people who were near to him because of that covenant relationship, and the various privileges that they received from God, uh, not because they merited it, but because it, it pleased him. And it was according to his grace policy, which means you don't earn or deserve anything. And so the Jews received the, uh, the, uh, the scriptures. Romans 3 talks about that. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about the fact that uh, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who got his name changed to Israel by God, uh, the progenitors of the nation of Israel, they received the temple tabernacle worship. Uh, we, they also, uh, the, the uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the progenitors of the nation. The four unconditional covenants to Israel, the Mosaic law was given to Israel. Uh, the four unconditional covenants, the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and new covenants. And uh, those are unconditional, un in contrast to the Mosaic law, which was conditional. And the Messiah would be a Jew as well. And Jesus is a Jew, and he's from the tribe of Judah, as we pointed out many times in the past, of course. And so, uh, but the Gentiles didn't have any of these things. And so we were far away, us Gentiles, and through faith in Jesus Christ and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification, we were united with the, the Jewish believers in the church. And that formed the new humanity, which, as Paul calls in chapter 5 of Ephesians, the bride of Christ. And uh, so we see that uh, that's a mystery not known to Old Testament saints, the church. And when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, uh, we'll see there that uh, the, there was a mystery doctrine that uh, Jewish and Gentile church-age believers would be co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the Messianic promise through faith in Jesus Christ, the justification, and through the baptism of the Spirit, uh, where they're united with Christ and identified with Him. And so uh, that uh, is not known to Old Testament saints in the past, but was revealed by, uh, to, by the Spirit to the apostles and the New Testament prophets, and their writings are now found in our Greek New Testament. So uh, we see that uh, in, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, which we're, about to, we're in the last two classes of, the new humanity is actually the, Jewish, the church, which composed of Jewish and Gentile church-age believers. And remember the church age began in 33 AD, according to the Acts, uh, in the, on the day of Pentecost, and it's recorded in the Acts chapter 2. The baptism of the Spirit took place at that time, first among the Jewish believers of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius and his family, the Gentiles started receiving the baptism of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, the justification. And that was not known to Old Testament saints, that they would be co-heirs, uh, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the Messianic promise. It would, in other words, they'd be on the equal footing with the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers would be. And that was not known to Old Testament saints. So that's, uh, we're not second-class citizens, in other words. So this was not, we knew that in the Old Testament, the Jews knew this, the Gentiles would get saved, but they didn't know this, that they would uh, form the bride of Christ with Jewish believers. And so this is fantastic news for us Gentile believers in the church age. It tells us, uh, it, like, uh, the, the grace of God, it makes us praise God for His grace policy, which flows from His attribute of love and the exercise of that attribute. And so it should cause us to worship and give thanks to Him and uh, we could do that uh, in two ways, give praise to Him by living the spiritual life, appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ, and considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and the cosmic system of Satan, and alive to God, and raised and seated with Him. And uh, because now, uh, that new humanity that we are part of is going to restore, with Jesus Christ at His second advent, is going to restore uh, mankind to its rightful position, which was the rule of the works of God's hands, presently at this time because of the fall of Adam and Eve, who were originally designed 
and their progeny to rule over the works of God's hands, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as we point out many times. But as we saw in Hebrews 2, this is not taking place because Satan is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, temporarily. And all the, the whole world is under his power, 1 John 5, 19. He deceives the entire world and he even offered up the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verse 6, if only he would uh, bow down and worship him. And Jesus, of course, emphatically rejected him. And uh, that would not have been a legitimate temptation unless he did, in fact, have that kind of authority at this time. And he does. So uh, uh, when Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father was the first step in restoring uh, the, the humanity to its rightful position as rulers of this earth. And uh, we see that uh, every time, starting in June of 33 AD, with the Jews in Acts chapter 10, followed by the Gentiles in Acts, Acts chapter 10, the Jews in chapter 2, uh, we see that every time someone and during the church age, uh, this leads right. This is true all the way up to the rapture, which ends the church age. Every time somebody, whoever they are, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, male or female, whoever you are, doesn't matter what na uh, nation you come from or language group, ethnicity, uh, your skin color. Uh, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are now part of this new humanity and a member of the body of Christ and the future bride of Christ. And when you come back with Christ, the second advent, uh, Revelation 19 and 20, we will dispossess Satan and the fallen angels. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 to the Christian community in Corinth that don't you know you're going to judge angels. And so uh, this is fantastic news. It's, 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 it's the death now. It's the end of the road for Satan and his kingdom. And that's why he wages war against the church and those who proclaim this message throughout the world. So, with that, uh, let's uh, with that uh, summarize uh, summarization of what we are at, up where at where we are at at this point in the study of Ephesians chapter two. Let's look at my cha uh, tra translation of chapter two, and then dig into verse twenty-two. So it says now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you. Uh, formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently uh, working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience. Then we see in verse 3, among whom all, each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, Hold one sec. I just I do that from time to time. Sorry about that. Verse three. It says, "Among whom each and every one of us also formerly, for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of God's wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest." Correspondingly, cause themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So that's our description of the Gentiles' uh, state, pre-conversion, pre-justification, uh, pre-unregenerate un state, and uh, we were enslaved to sin and Satan in his cosmic system. It's what it's describing us as being at prior to our justification. Verse 4, contrast to this, but because God is rich with regards to mercy, because the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit to save because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with them, our identification with Christ and his resurrection. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us to be, uh, as a corporate unit, to be seated in the heavenlies. That's our identification with Christ and his session at the right hand of the Father. How did he do this? Because of, why did he do this? Because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Verse 7, he did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit to save because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from, the merit, from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us in the Christian community are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us have been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good 
and these God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. So we see there's a contrast between verses 1 through 3, which describe the pre-conversion, unregenerate state of us Gentile Christians, and the contrast with what we are now as a result of our justification through faith in Christ and union identification with Him. And so then it says in verse 11, which is a, uh, infer- starts a uh, begins an inference from those 10 verses, Therefore, each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by, tho- by those who, uh, who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to be uh, to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God and the sphere of the cosmic world system. Now we have another description in verse 12, as we've been pointing out, of the pre-conversion unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians, you and I. And now, like verses 4 through 10 uh, of ch- chapter 2, thir- verses 13 through 22, just, uh, present an emphatic contrast with the description of the pre-conversion, unregenerate state of these Gentile church-age believers in verse 12. So it says in verse 13, However, because of your faith in and united in a vacation with Christ Jesus, each of you Gentile church-age believers is a corporate unit who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to the same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely, by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility. And that hostility is between the two races with each other and the two with God. Verse 15 describes verse 14 in greater detail. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself a justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the spirit. Thus, he caused peace to be established and that's between the two races with each other and the two races with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility and that's between the two races, again, interacting with each other and the two races interacting with God by means of faith in himself, a justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. And correspondingly, he, came, he as a result, came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each one of you Gentiles and namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near, the Jews. So we see that the law was causing hostility between the two races with each other and with God, uh, in, in regards to each other, the dietary regulations uh, prohibited uh, Jews from eating uh, certain foods which God designated as unclean because they were part of the worship of the Canaanite pagan gods. And so he didn't want them to get involved in those eaten meals, which are uh, basically part of the worship service of these pagan gods. So also it was a form of arrogance. It produced arrogance in the Jews. They thought they merited it and thought they were better than the Gentiles. And because of the, they were given the law, that was not the case. And then we see both groups had a problem with God because of the law, because they couldn't keep it perfectly, which he demanded if you're going to have a relationship and a fellowship with him. And, uh, and so uh, it was also a hostility because now uh, it caused God to uh, ex- exercise his wrath toward these, unre- when they were unregenerate, these unregenerate sinners. But Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place uh, so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. And he suffered, so he suffered the consequences of, for us not keeping the law perfectly which God, a perfect holy God requires. And also, he uh, he basically, um, he lived the life of perfect obedience that the law required, which we could not do. So then it says, so that's how we remove the hostility. Then it says in verse 18, consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself and each, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, 
Therefore, each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather, each of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, and that's the saints throughout history and to, up to the present moment, that is, members of God's household. Why? Because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis, basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple. How? By appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you, without exception, are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So today is the first of two classes in Ephesians 2.22. And today we're going to look at the, the, uh, the fact that this is an exegetical statement, which is modified by two prepositional phrases. The two prepositional phrases give the means by which the exegetical, the contents of the exegetical clause or the assertion of the exegetical clause are, uh, is accomplished. Church age believers are being built together into God's dwelling place. And that's the exegetical clause explaining in detail verse 21. And the means, the two prepositional phrases which bookend verse 22 are giving the means by which this has taken place. So uh, if you look on the board in my notes, we see that Ephesians 2.22 is composed of an exegetical statement. It's composed of an exegetical statement, and uh, it's composed of kai, humes, sun oiko domesta, eis, katoi, katerion, tu theo, which is translated, in other words, all of you without exception of being built together into God's dwelling place. Uh, let's see, the Good News Bible, they translate this particular uh, phrase, uh, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives. And so we see also, as I mentioned a few moments ago, that exegetical statement is modified by two prepositional phrases, which serve as bookends for this exegetical statement. What are the two prepositional phrases? In union with him, good job by the, uh, the Good News Bible, at the beginning of the verse 22, and at the end of it, through his spirit. Okay, so when we talk about what these two prepositional phrases uh, mean so the first uh, and I and is uh, is and ho in the Greek text all right and now I translate that by appropriating by faith union identification with him and I'll explain why I translate it like that because in other words it's as we've been seeing throughout these prepositional phrases Paul's using shorthand in him in Christ Jesus in himself in the beloved it's shorthand and it's and a lot of times it's shorthand for the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the spirit at justification at the end the last two verses of the chapter chapter 2 it's talking about appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ so the person of Christ is put for our, the church age believer appropriating by faith their union identification with Christ so, because we're talking about the growth now of this of the of the church spiritual growth. So the first prepositional phrase, which uh, we have um, again Ephesians two twenty two, we have an exegetical statement it's composed of, which is again kai humais so inoiko domesta eis katoi katerion tu theo, which I translate again. In other words, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place. Again, it's modified by two prepositional phrases, which I pointed out to you in the Good News Bible, which serve as bookends for this exegetical statement. The first, and ho, which I translate again by appropriating by faith the union identification with him, fronts this exegetical clause. In other words, it precedes it, it for emphasis. While the latter, and penumity, by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit, completes this exegetical statement. Now, in Ephesians 2.22, as I said before, is an exegetical statement, which means that it's defining for the reader Paul's assertion in verse 21. It asserts that Gentile church-age believers are being built together into a dwelling place of God by appropriating by faith their union and identification with the Lord, which appropriates the omnipotence of the Spirit. On the other hand, in verse 21, Paul asserts that on the basis of these Gentile church-age believers being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith in Christ, and union and identification with him, like a building, they're growing into a holy temple by means of fellowship with the Lord. So therefore, this assertion in verse 22 explains in greater detail the one in verse 21. Why? Because it's defining what this holy temple is, namely a dwelling place of God. And in fact, if you, if you look at the Bible, 
You know, if you look at the Bible from cover to cover, you realize that God wants to have fellowship with the human race, his creatures, his moral, rational creatures. He wants to have fellowship with them. He wants to have a relationship and a fellowship with them. Well, that fellowship started the Garden of Eden, but it was broken because of the fall of Adam and Eve when they, Eve, when they disobeyed God's prohibition to not eat from the tree of the read from the fruit, the tree of knowledge, uh, the fruit, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. He didn't want to eat from that fruit. Okay, he told them not to. They did. Eve was deceived into doing it. Adam knew he shouldn't be doing it, but he did it anyways because his wife, his love for his wife, was greater than his love for obedience to God. And uh, so, thus, he's the first idolater. And the first act of idolatry actually was, uh, when you think about it, is is is, is a, it had to do with putting a relationship, a human relationship, ahead of uh, obedience to God. And so we see that, uh, so then we see the whole human history has been a great big uh, progression of uh, trying to get a uh, process of God trying to get back to, with mankind and uh, the human race and have a relationship and a fellowship with them. And so we see that, uh, you know, we get into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that's, uh, we see that... Uh, you know, the, the, the antediluvian period was a disaster. Only Noah and his family survived. And uh, so they, so the human race started again. And then we get to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob got his name changed by God to Israel. And he had 12 boys and they to four different women. And they became the progenitors of the nation of Israel. And then God on Mount Sinai and with the tabernacle and the, uh, he, he wanted to dwell with them. And, you know, with the pillar of fire at night in the Exodus generation and the, the pillar of cloud during the day, he led the nation as he dwelt in their midst. But that was that was very precarious because eventually, uh, because of the, the, the whole issue in Acts 30, Exodus 32 with the golden calf episode, that was uh, not good. So uh, there was a change there. And uh, so the Holy Spirit uh, went, uh, went uh, along. Uh, with uh, the Exodus generation, God's presence there, and uh, the presence of Christ, the the pre-incarnate Christ, the, it was a Christophany, and uh, because of God's wrath, and so, uh, but then we see that temple, uh, it became now that tabernacle became a temple, in the days of Solomon, and uh, David had the idea to uh, to um, get this temple, and so they dwelt, God could dwell with His people. And it did with Solomon. We saw that with King Solomon. But eventually, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in that temple, the presence of God, uh, was gradually removed. And we saw with the Babylonian invasions of 605, 597, and 586 B.C. of the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, we saw the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, left that temple. And it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And then we see that uh, Zerubbabel's temple came back. And we saw the book of Haggai, and that was built, rebuilt. The Zerubbabel's temple was constructed on the site of Solomon's, uh, the rubble's, uh, rubble of Solomon's temple. And then we see that at that point, uh, so they finished that temple in 516 B.C., according to the book of Haggai. And then that, uh, that eventually became, uh, that eventually became Herod's temple. And Jesus Christ, the, the, the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, walked into that temple. So God was dwelling amongst his, the human race with a, to a person, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who is the incarnate Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And he veiled his deity in that human flesh. He voluntarily denied himself the independent use of his divine attributes. And so that he could dwell amongst uh, human beings and to provide us salvation by suffering the wrath of God on the cross in our place so that we would suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire and living a life of perfect obedience that we couldn't live and know that... To establish a relationship and a fellowship with God, He did it in our place as our substitute. And so then something tremendous happened, when G, as we've been mentioning uh, extensively here, uh, at the moment of justification, on the, on the day of Pentecost, at 33 AD, the Jewish believers, uh, the apostles, uh, who were already believers at that point, received the baptism of the Spirit, and they were dwelt by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 talks about the Father indwelling each member of the church age, each church age believer. Uh, Romans 8.11 uh, talks about the Spirit and the Son, Colossians 1.27, and other places that all three members of the Trinity now dwell in each member of the body of Christ. So God dwells bodily in His people, and we now are the temple of God as a result. So God is dwelling not in a building constructed by men, but in a building, really, that's constructed by God. Uh, in fact, 
That's why we need a resurrection body uh, to complete the process. So God's working within and then he out, outside. So men, mankind likes to work outside. When they build a house, they get the, the frame and everything. And then, then we talk about doing the stuff inside. We had a big, a lot of building going on here in Huntsville. And you see the erect these, you know, they have the foundation of these buildings, apartment complexes, houses. And then they put the, and then they furnish it inside. Well, God does it the exact opposite. So you and I, he's working on inwardly in our character, our thoughts. And then flows from our thoughts flow our words and actions. He's dealing with our soul. He's cleansed our soul and our conscience from, from guilt of sin through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So we, this is what God's doing now. So he lives in us. And if you read the book of Revelation, he's going to dwell with his people bodily. Okay? Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and he'll be localized one day in the new heavens and the new earth with us. And Jesus Christ and his millennial reign, God in the flesh will dwell in our midst personally. So that's, if you look at, you can look at the story of the Bible that way. And we're in the process of God restoring that relationship with himself and the human race uh, to his son, Jesus Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, explains in greater detail uh, the assertion in Ephesians 2, 21, because it's defining what this holy temple is, namely a dwelling place of God. Now the referent is, if you look at uh, in um in Ephesians 2.20 says, it says, you too, in the Good News Bible, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives. You. The word there for you is the word su, the personal pronoun su. It's in the nominative second person plural form. So it's in the plural. So it means all of you. And it actually not only refer, it refers to these Gentile Christians, as we know, because of the contents of verse 11 say, He's writing to Gentile Christians. And the word doesn't simply mean all of you, or as we say in the South, y'all. Uh, and so God actually is a Southerner. Uh, so, the, so the word not only refers to these Gentile Christians living in the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia as a corporate unit, but it's actually used in a distributive sense, emphasizing no exception. So uh, this brings up a point in my translations. I like to, and I'm, I'm, not a lot of guys would agree with me, and that's fine. <laughs> that's all right. I just, I think when I, I say, I translate my, this, this personal pronoun, Sue, or the personal pronoun, ego, when they're in the plural form, these two words, all of you and uh, us or we, uh, with the, uh, the, the, the uh, plural form of ego in the Greek, uh, I use it, I translate it not just all of you or us, all of us, but each and every one of you or each and every one of us, because as a corporate unit, because he's not only speaking them as a corporate unit, he's definitely talking about them as a corporate unit. But he's also talking about his individuals emphasizing no exceptions. And I know there are, uh, there's a Greek word that talks about, is used in a distributive sense, but he, does, he doesn't always, we know there's many places the context will determine what the idea is. So I believe that Paul's trying to emphasize with everybody in the Christian community, and Gentile Christian community, that this is true of each and every one of them. I really believe that's what he's thinking and he wants them to know that. So that's why I, I translate it in a distributive sense. Now it's interesting. The use of the personal pronoun is unnecessary in Greek. Why? Because the finite for, the form of the finite verb in this language indicates the person, number, and gender of the subject, and this is what makes Greek an inflectional language. So uh, if you look at the Greek text, um, let's see, we can get, uh, see this word here? All right, so that's, uh, sum, uh, that's in verse 21, we'll, we'll go over here. Uh, so where is the word here I want to look for? Soon oikodomeo. So soon oikodomeo. Right? Soon oikodomeo is this word right here. But in, it's in the here, uh, this word soon oikodomeo is in the second person plural, present passive indicative form. So the second person plural is, is, is noted by the, the suffix of the word, the sigma, theta, uh, theta and uh, epsilon right here. Okay? So that's telling us it's second person plural. And then you have uh, this particular word also uh, is in the present tense, okay? And it's an indicative mood, and it's in a passive voice. And so the, this particular word, uh, it, so we have, we don't, in, with the Greek verb, the second person plural form is already in the verb. So you and I, when we say, all of us went to the, uh, ran to the store, okay? We have, with the Greek, that's all in one word. We have to have several words to do that, okay? Because so, it's the inflectional language. He was the same way. So when the personal pronoun is used, therefore, it may serve to clarify the subject 
or contrast the subject with someone else uh, for emphasis. And uh, and here in Ephesians 2.22, it's used for emphasis and contrast. First, it's used to emphasize that these Gentile church-age believers are being built together into a dwelling place of God by appropriating by faith their union identification with Jesus Christ, which appropriates the omnipotence of the Spirit. And secondly, this uh, the presence of this second uh, second person plural form of the personal pronoun ego, uh, excuse me, not ego, su, uh, it's, uh, it serves to contrast these Gentile church-age believers with the Jewish church-age believers, who they've been inextricably joined together through the baptism of the Spirit, which took place again at their justification, and like these Jewish Christians, identified them with Jesus and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. Now the verb that I pointed out to you, sun oikodomeo, it pertains to a building undergoing construction uh, along with another. And specifically, it pertains to building an edifice or constructing one from various parts. Now, it's obviously used in a figurative or metaphorical sense here of the Gentile Christian community being built together into a dwelling place of God. And the means by which this is accomplished, as we'll see with the two prepositional phrases, um, and we we point them out briefly, but we'll see this on Thursday in detail. The means by which this building process is being put together is by experiencing fellowship with the Lord. Church age believers experiencing fellowship with the Lord by appropriating by faith their union and invocation with Him, which in turn, faith, post-justification, faith appropriates the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. And the word for God there, uh, if you look at the Good News Bible, it says where God lives, okay? And my translation, what's the Net Bible? They have... Look at their translation too. Um, see the a dwelling place of God. The word God there is theos, and we see this word many times. It refers, of course, to the Father here, and the articulate construction of the word expresses the idea that there were many gods in the world, but the God Jewish and Gentile Christians worshipped was the one and only true God, in contrast to unregenerate humanity, which worshipped the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. And the word katoikaterion, which I pointed out to you a few places, a few moments ago, uh, katerion is the word that's translated dwelling place uh, by um, a, um, the Net Bible. And I think the uh, a place where God lives is how uh, the Good News Bible translates it. So the word katoikaterion, dwelling place, refers to the place in which God the Father dwells, which is the souls and bodies of these Gentile church-age believers and it's the object, it is the object of the preposition ace, which functions as a marker of a change or state of condition. And therefore, that would mean that this preposition is marking the members of the Gentile Christian community as a group of individuals whose character is being transformed from the state of unregenerate sinners, enslaved to the sin nature and the devil in his cosmic system, to those whom God the Father indwells. And the word theos, God, it functions as a genitive of possession, which expresses the idea that this dwelling place, which is the souls and bodies of these Gentile Christians, belongs to God the Father. Or in other words, they are His possession. Remember, back. this harkens back to Paul's statements in Ephesians 1, 11, and 14. They, we saw in verse 11, uh, that verse, Ephesians 1, 11, asserts that the church-age believer has, uh, has been claimed by God as His possession because he predestinated them in eternity past to adoption as his sons, according to his predetermined plan. And verse 14 asserts that the dwelling, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in church-age believers is the down payment of their inheritance until the Father redeems them who are his, his possession at the rapture of the church. Let's quickly look at that uh, passage there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse... Um, that's the word I'm going to start you at. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1... Um, Oh, but goodness gracious. Let's put it, uh, verse 11, Ephesians 1, 11, And we'll read all the way to verse 14. So I'm taking you here because what we see here is that genitive of possession, theos, it's uh, God. It's saying that this dwelling place belongs to God. What's that dwelling place? The bodies and souls of church-age believers, Gentile church-age believers, you and I. So we're God's possession. He, he indwells us personally. I mean, there's a what a great, wasn't that great thing to un hear, understand that and believe that? They're indwelling us and we're his, because we're his possession. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. He says in the following, I'm reading from my translation, because of whom? Because of Christ. Each and every one of us has been claimed as a possession because of having been predestinated according to the predetermined plan, namely the one who is causing each and every animate 
an inanimate object to function according to his purpose, the Father's purpose. That is his, the Father's sovereign will. Why? Oh, what's for what purpose? In order that each and every one of us in the church age, church age, uh, in the church, the body of Christ, would belong to a particular group of people, namely those who are certain of possessing a confident expectation of blessing, rewards for faithful service, resurrection body. Why? Because of their faith in and union identification with the one and only Christ for the purpose of praising his glory. Verse 13, correspondingly, because of Christ, because of whom each and every one of you were sealed by means of the omnipotence of the one and only promised spirit who is holy because each and every one of you obeyed the one and only message, which is truth, namely the proclamation of the one and only gospel, which produced your salvation when we obeyed it, specifically because each of you believed in him. Then it says in verse 14, the spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until he redeems his possession at the rapture for the praise of his glory. So who's his possession that he redeems at the rapture? The church. Isn't that something? So you does that make you feel like you're loved? It should. You should feel loved because you are loved. And you're loved by much greater than any human being could ever love you. You're loved by the triune God and they manifested it in many ways. Uh, we were created in the image of God. And when we, as fallen sinners, Jesus Christ went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. He lived a life of perfect obedience that we couldn't live, that God required, a holy, perfect God required if we're going to have a to establish an eternal relationship and a fellowship with us. Out of love, his son did that. Out of love, the father sent the son to do that. Out of love, the spirit helped the son do that. And then at the moment of our justification, through faith in Jesus Christ, the father gave us his son's righteousness, which is his righteousness. We are indwelt by the Trinity at that moment. We're in union with Christ. The father looks at his son as crucified, looks at us as he looks at his son, crucified, died, buried, raised and seated with his son. You're a part of the new humanity, the bride of Christ. You're going to reign with Christ. You have power and dwell. You have the Trinity indwelling you. You can handle any adversity that comes along in life. You've got the power already. You got the word of God. You got the spirit of God. You got the Trinity indwelling us. Uh, you, Satan can't touch us. He can attack us and they can do all kinds of stuff and they will. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. But we can withstand that with the word of God and, and accepting by faith and being aware of the fact that we're in union with Christ and we're indwelt by the Trinity, each member of the Trinity. So we have, the, the, we have the, the, the more than enough resources to handle uh, the devil and his attacks and whatever life might bring us because of these things, people. Because we are overwhelmingly conquerors, conquerors, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And nothing can ever separate us from the love of God because of our union identification with Christ. So let's keep going. And we see that in, the, in this word, uh, in the uh, back to my notes here, but you see this, you are being built together. That particular verb, that, that phrase, uh, are being built together, that's the word, as we pointed out before, suin oikodomeo. And it's in the present tense. It's a customary or state of present, which is used to signal an ongoing state, meaning the subject which we know as church-age believers that are Gentiles, uh, experience the state of being uh, being built together uh, with Jewish believers into a holy place, a uh, temple of God. So we see, therefore, the customary present tense of this word. And that's why they translated are being built together. The A-R-E is telling us it's the present tense and it's a state of. Therefore, the customary present or state of present tense of this verb expresses the idea that these Gentile church-age believers continually exist in the state of or condition of, quote-unquote, being built together with each, and each, with each other and with members of the Jewish Christian community in a dwelling place of God the Father or the place where God the Father dwells. In other words, like the present tense of the verb sun anoromologeo in Ephesians 2.21, which we saw, the present tense of this word, sun oikodomeo in Ephesians 2.22, indicates that this spiritual building process or construction is presently underway and continuing to its completion at the rapture. However, the present tense of the former, Sumarumagao in Ephesians 2.21, indicates that the church is a work in progress in the sense that it's growing every day as a result of sinners exercising faith in Jesus Christ. There, it's talking about numerical growth. This results in the Father imputing His Son's righteousness to them with the result that He declares them justified. But not only numerical growth, but also character growth. Simultaneously, the Father, through the work of the Spirit and baptism, places these Gentile uh, church-age believers, justified sinners, in union with His Son and identifies them with His Son. And so this is all supported by the fact that this word, sumar in Ephesians 2.21, functions syntactically as a causal participle 
We saw this in detail. That, we noted, presents the reason why, or the basis upon which, the members of the Christian community exist in the state of growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Thus, it expresses the idea that on the basis of, quote-unquote, the members of the Christian community existing in the state of being con uh, continually fitted inextricably together as a corporate unit, by means of justification by faith and union identification with Christ, they are growing into a holy temple by means of fellowship with the Lord. On the other hand, the latter, in verse 22, we see, which is sunoikodomeo, that present tense, that verb, uh, it, it indicates that the church is a work in progress in the sense of the individual members of the Christian community growing up spiritually as a corporate unit. How do we know this? Well, it's indicated again by the fact that it, Ephesians 2.22 is associating the growth of the dwelling place of God with appropriating by faith one's union and identification with Jesus Christ. And this post-justification faith is the responsibility of those who are already children of God through justification by faith in Jesus Christ and union and identification with Him. And the passive voice of this verb, and, uh, in Ephesians 2.22, indicates that the subject's receiving the action of the verb by an expressed or unexpressed agency. Now, the two agencies are expressed, and they're inextricably linked together. At the beginning of the class, I showed you what they were. Here's the Nestle Alan text. Enho, okay, which has the figure of metonymy, which talks about appropriating by faith, uh, the, uh, the church age believer appropriating by faith their union identification with Christ. Enho, and then en panumati, which is speaking of the Holy Spirit. That talks about uh, the on, appropriating the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, which is done through faith in what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures. Pretty simple. So, we see, again, that the passive voice of this verb indicates, so in oikodomeo, are being built together, in Ephesians 2.22, indicates that the subject, which is these Gentile church-age believers, receive the action of the verb expressed by, or, by an expressed or unexpressed agency. They receive this action. And the two expressed agencies are found in the prepositional phrases. And they're inextricably linked together. The first, as I pointed out to you, and ho, it, which it contains the figure of metonymy, as I said, which indicates that the person of Christ is put for these Gentile church-age believers, appropriating by faith their union identification with his, with his son and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. And the second is the prepositional phrase, as I pointed out to you, and panumity, which also contains the figure of metonymy, which indicates that the person of the Holy Spirit is put for the exercise of his omnipotence on behalf of these church-age believers, when these church-age believers appropriate by faith their union identification with Christ. So, remember it says, in quoting Habakkuk 2.4, a book that we're almost finished with over here at DBC, that we taught here at Winston Bible Ministries. Uh, the righteous person, the justified sinner, is to walk, live their life by means of faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's Word, what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures. So to appropriate by faith, your union identification with Christ. What does that mean? Appropriate means take possession of, experience, okay? By faith, your union identification with Christ. We saw this a couple of classes ago. Well, I think it was last Saturday. We've done it many times. Uh, the great passages, Romans 6, Colossians 2 and 3. Uh, you, you, to appropriate by faith your union identification with Christ, if you read Romans 6 and Colossians 3, it's to consider yourself dead to the sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because you've died with Christ and you're raised with Christ and you're seated with Christ. And, you, and thus, if you're dead to the sin nature, you're dead to the, the, the Satan's cosmic system and that we once enslaved to, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So this post-justification faith, because it's the faith we must operate in after getting saved, okay? After being converted to Christianity, after our justification, in other words. That post-justification faith is critical in order for us to grow up spiritually. And he's talking in this passage, Paul is, about the spiritual growth of members of the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile. So as we close, this post-justification faith appropriates the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, which thus, remember Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, gross exaggeration for the sake of effect. Doesn't want you to move mountains. The point is, whatever is what you find impossible, God can move, and you have to have faith. That moves mountains. That does the impossible in your life. So therefore, the passive voice of this verb, sun oikodemeo, are being built together, as you see in Ephesians 2.22, indicates that these Gentile church-age believers, as the subject of this verb, receive the action of being built together 
with each other and members of the Jewish Christian community into a God into God's dwelling place or a place that God dwells. And this we noted is again accomplished by these Gentile church age believers appropriating by faith their union identification with Him. And again, this post justification faith in turn appropriates the omnipotence of the Spirit and enables the Spirit to accomplish this task of building them into a dwelling place which belongs to the Father. So we must walk by faith, not by sight. Paul uses that a quote from Habakkuk 2.4 uh, to uh, basically, um, he uses that in, in Romans, he uses it in uh, was it, uh, Hebrews, Galatians. And so he uses that several places. It's important. You and I must walk by faith after getting saved, after our justification, after our conversion. Faith in what? Faith in what the Spirit's teaching us. And the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's omnipotence. And uh, the, the sword of the Spirit is what? Is the Word of God, which He's inspired. So we must be, that's why we emphasize the need to learn and to put into practice God's Word. And we can't have, if we, we can't grow spiritually and, and have it affect a change in our lives if we don't have faith in it. See, faith produces obedience to God's commands and prohibitions in Scripture. How do we know that? By faith, Hebrews 11, 8, Abraham obeyed God. Faith was the means by which he obeyed God, which tells us that faith in God's word produces obedience to his word. So you know you're growing up spiritually by the fact that you're obeying and walking by faith when you obey God's, the various commands and prohibitions in scripture. So this is very, this is an exciting thing that's going on. So Paul, the end of the chapter, chapter two and verses 21 and 22, he's talking about the spiritual growth numerically and spiritually, the character wise, the growth of the church. And it's ongoing right now. We're in that process. And so you and I are a part of this. We're actually the subjects of this growth, spiritual growth. But we also can be, uh, by leading others to the Savior, we can be a part of the numerical growth, being used by God to, to grow this, uh, this vast, massive construction project that's ongoing right now in the church age, which is going to result in uh, being a, a, a beautiful bride for Jesus Christ and who will reign with Him for a thousand years on into eternity. And you and I are part of that, that building that, where God dwells, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, let's walk out and live our lives after this class and live our lives in a manner that's consistent with that fact. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.